the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event that's happened in the last five billion years. But does it still impact our lives today? In this series, we've been talking about that, about our next life, the life that we live because of the resurrection. And we're looking today at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 specifically. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the opportunity to be here today. And uh, this church has stood for 49 years, and we've seen some amazing things happen in this building. And, and even this morning, we've seen some amazing things take place. And so we thank you for that. Thank you that you're a God who is still doing powerful things, miracles, touching lives, changing transforming us and uh, we know that every time we gather together it contributes to that in a significant way so we open our hearts and our minds to you this morning we pray this in Jesus name amen Christians are wanted dead and alive dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ that's because in our first life, we love to sin. Our, in our first life, sin reigned and it had mastery over us. But then we died and were born again through Jesus Christ. And we began our next life. And Paul describes that difference in Romans 6, beginning at verse 6. He says, Our old self was crucified. Sin has been rendered powerless. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are free from sin, verse 7. Verse 12, we do not let sin reign. And verse 14, sin is not our master. That's all part of the resurrection victory that Christ gave us. Now, we experience this victory as a process. So every day, we have opportunities to die and practice death and to practice resurrection. In Romans 6.11, Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus. Now, of course, this would create some significant inner conflicts. And Paul mentions that in Galatians 5 when he says in verse 17, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. As Christians, we only live twice. And we do have a license to kill. We can crucify our sinful nature. Because our old nature will never die of natural causes. It has to be killed. It's not enough to put it in maximum security for 20 years with time off for good behavior. We have to crucify the sinful nature. And that's because for us, sin is so easy. When it comes to disobedience, we're all naturals. We don't need any instruction or tech support. Yeah, I've been trying to be selfish, but I, I just can't figure it out. It's not necessary to take refresher courses on how to extend the expiry date of our grudges. We don't need motivational seminars in advanced apathy. 
You don't need a personal trainer to guide you in developing habits of greed or gluttony. When it comes to sin, we have the skill set. We don't have to apply for a learner's license in going astray. When it comes to sin, we are naturals. That's why we can't take it easy on our sinful nature. Crucifixion is a violent process. The way that Jesus was treated during his crucifixion is an idea of how we need to deal with our sinful nature. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin is easy, but righteousness is something we have trouble with. Loving our enemies is not a basic instinct. Denying yourself is not muscle memory. Being consistently honest is more difficult than learning to speak French. Boy, did I have trouble with French in high school. In fact, there are three things that are literally impossible for me. Make that four. Learning French, playing the piano, finishing the Tour de France, and living a righteous life. That's the most difficult of all. Which brings me to an unpleasant duty. I have to tell you some bad news. And it's this, the Christian life is impossible for us to live. We can't do it. It's impossible to the extent that only one person ever did it successfully. But the good news is that he is willing to do an encore performance through us. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the only way it works. Whatever you can't do, Jesus can do through you. As long as you get out of the way and stop interfering. Which reminds me of an experience I had in my illustrious golf career. I have only played 18 holes of golf twice. The first time I shot 120, and then I stopped counting. There was no lead, more, more lead in my pencil. I was hopeless. So you can add golf to my list, speaking French, learning piano, playing golf. I'm hopeless. The second time I played golf, my score was 73. Is that the greatest improvement in the history of sports from 120 to 73? How in the world is that possible? In fact, I not only shot a 73, I won the tournament. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> How did I do it? Well, of course, it's all in the wrist, right? Well, here's how it happened. The pastors in the greater Edmonton area decided to have a golf tournament. And they called it a Texas scramble. And in this particular tournament, you work in teams. So each player writes down their handicap, and they put together the best golfers with the worst to sort of even things out. And since I was the very worst, my partner 
was the very best. He was a visiting youth pastor from California, kind of at the semi-pro level. So over 18 holes, we would tee off, and the worst shot didn't count. His went 300 yards straight down the fairway. Mine went over the trees, through the bushes, past the barbed wire fence, into a gravel pit. And we would have to decide, okay, which of those shots are we going to count? So I would take another ball, and I would go and put it 300 yards down the fairway where his shot ended up, and that was my shot. And so we hit it again and count the best shot. Now, it wasn't all about him because we did have to count 12 of my shots, which included six drives. So once in a while, I hit something decent. But it was the most amazing experience. His shots were ridiculous. And they all counted for my score. 73 strokes. I never knew I was such a great golfer. And that's how I won. Or maybe I should say we won, because it wasn't just me, right? You see, as believers, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We are given his score. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham had to do his part. He had to believe and trust God, but God did all the rest. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's amazing. You see, in that golf game, I wasn't the caddy. I still had to do my part but my partner did all the rest. So really, I can't take any credit. I'm just glad I didn't mess him up too badly. That's what Paul is talking about. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You have to do your part. You have to crucify your old nature, and you have to trust him and believe in him, and then just don't mess things up. As a pastor, that was always my greatest prayer. When God was doing something, I'd say, God, I just ask one thing. Don't let me mess this up. Get me out of the way. Because I always have this tendency to try to impose my will, do it my way. We have to learn how to get out of the way and let him live through us. Because the Christian life is impossible for us to live only one person ever did it successfully, but now he's willing to do an encore performance in our lives, and we get the credit. It's credited to us as righteousness. Christ's righteousness is credited to us, and it, then it is channeled through us. It overflows. It overflows in our language and in our lifestyle. That's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, where it says, And on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me. As Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Overflowing. Whoever believes in me, Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
This is the key. By this, he meant the Spirit. Jesus does an encore performance, living out through us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the key. If you like Jesus, you might also like the Holy Spirit. And it's so clear when you look at the Bible. I mean, think of Peter without the Holy Spirit, promising great things, but his performance fell short consistently and no time more so than he was fearfully denying Christ before a handful of idle bystanders. How many times have I been like that, attempting to do something for God and failing miserably because I was just doing it myself through my effort? And yet look at Peter again. Two months later, here he is, this time filled with the Holy Spirit, standing up in front of thousands of people and proclaiming the victory of the resurrection of Christ. Are you serious? That's Peter? Nobody saw that coming. What happened? Well, it was the Holy Spirit. Just think of what you are like without the Holy Spirit. What kind of a person are you? Maybe without the Holy Spirit, you're consistently defeated by temptation, overcome by bitterness, struggling with doubt, weary in well-doing. And then something changes. Something changes, and you're loving your enemies, and you're resisting the devil, and you're filled with hope, and you're serving with joy. What happened? Well, it has to be the Holy Spirit. Not only is Christ's righteousness credited into our account, it's channeled out through our actions, and it's overflowing. Rivers of living water will flow from within. Wherever there's an overflow, it has to be the Holy Spirit. It has to be the Holy Spirit. But there can't be an overflow until something happens first. And Ephesians 5.18 explains that, where it says, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You can't overflow until, first of all, you're filled. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But who is the Holy Spirit? Do I even have the Holy Spirit? Well, all Christians have the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If you're a Christian, you have his Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit, but we're not all filled. That's why this is a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it works like this. We can't get more of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit can get a lot more of us. And that's only possible if we practice John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. For the Holy Spirit to get more of me, I have to decrease. I have to deny myself. I have to get rid of anything that interferes with his mission. For example, without the Holy Spirit, I am a very angry person. I am easily offended. And I deliberately say things to hurt people. And if I'm not happy, I don't want anyone else to be happy. 
That's who I am without the Holy Spirit. But Jesus has given me victory through the resurrection. Victory that freed me from sin so that it would not be my master. This now is my next life. I have a reborn identity. I'm a much better person with the Holy Spirit. And you know, I could even be way better than that if I just let the Holy Spirit get even more of me. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't overflow until, first of all, you're filled. And you can't be filled unless you give the Holy Spirit more of your life. It's interesting that in the original German, or maybe it was Greek, I can't remember which, but to be filled means to be controlled. And that actually makes it more practical. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a supplement we take to boost our spiritual energy. The Holy Spirit is the sovereignty of God applied to the areas of our life that we still control. At church we sing, we bow down before you, we lay down our lives. And during the week we can't even lay down the remote because that's an area we control. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. It's amazing what happens when I know that the Holy Spirit's in control because I'm a totally different person because he does things so differently than I do. There have been times, many times, when as a pastor I had to talk to somebody who I was angry at because I'm an angry person. And I wanted to vent my righteous indignation. But as I started talking to, to them, I felt the Holy Spirit saying, excuse me, excuse me, can, can you move out of the way? Uh, I'd like to get in on this conversation. Just, can you just move aside and, and let me do the talking? And if I did that, it was, it was like my anger was somehow transformed into grace. I actually experienced mercy and forgiveness. It was the most amazing thing, because that's not who I am. I don't react that way. It wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. He took over control. He was overflowing. Boy, I need to do that more often. Be filled with the Spirit. When you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, you actually have the power to live the Christian life the way Jesus did. Not naturally, but supernaturally. It's not about exerting more effort or trying harder. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I want to end with a little parable that uh, Ray Steadman gave when I was at seminary a number of years ago. I remembered it, I wrote it out, and I gave the script to Josh, and he rewrote it and uh, had the youth turn it into a video. And with any luck, it's going to appear on the screen in five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> 
A vehicular lesson. Once upon a time, in a suburb, not that far away, there lived a man named James. One day, James looked around at his friends' houses and noticed they all had cars. James wanted a car too. The next sunny day, James headed down to Stampede Toyota to check out their selection. After several hours of indecision, he finally saw one that looked just right. It was his favorite color, silver. The seats were rich Corinthian leather. Is that 1st Corinthian or 2nd Corinthian? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but getting back to the story. The car's horn had such a pleasing tone, there was no doubt about it. This was the car James had been looking for. So he signed the sales contract and shook the salesman's hand and began pushing his new car home. Why would he push it home? Well, you see, James didn't know his car had an engine. I guess that explains it. When he finally arrived home, James pushed his new car into the driveway, then stood back to admire it with pride. He called his neighbors over so they could share in his joy. Everyone was impressed. James couldn't wait to show his friends at work the next day. He even got up extra early. He was so excited to get there. When James finally arrived at work, he couldn't figure out why he was so late. He didn't care too much, though, because he, now he could show his co-workers his pride and joy. Again, everyone was impressed. That evening, James pushed his car home. By the time he arrived, he was exhausted. After one last glance at the beautiful vehicle in his driveway, he crawled into bed. As the days turned into weeks, James' enthusiasm started to wane. He wasn't getting to spend any time at all sitting on that rich Corinthian leather. And let me guess, you still don't know if it's 1st or 2nd Corinthian. Right. Anyways, his muscles were sore and his ligaments were strained. His boss had warned him that if he was late one more time, he'd be fired. Maybe this whole car thing wasn't such a good idea after all. James was very disappointed. Fortunately, one of his neighbors saw his predicament and came to the rescue. Listen, James, I know what you need. You need to come to our church. We're having special meetings next week. On Monday, we're going to hear how to push with your right shoulder. On Tuesday, it's all about the left shoulder. Wednesday's off because of choir, and then on Thursday, we're going to show you how to put your whole back into it. Friday is you, so you'll want to avoid all that craziness, but Saturday, there's going to be some workshops about how people from different cultures in their world push their own cars. And then finally on Sunday, we're planning an inspirational rally to promise to push harder the next week. Well, James went to the meetings, and they certainly got his adrenaline pumping. Sure enough, on Sunday morning, James made a rededication to push harder. But by the time he got to the car after the service, all that adrenaline was gone. He had no strength left, and he couldn't even push his car out of the parking lot. He was so dejected that he collapsed to the ground sobbing. Here's where things get interesting, because the best character shows up. Hey, what about James? And the neighbor? And his co-workers? None of them are as good as this next guy. Trust me. James was on the ground. And that's where Josh found him. Josh was the youth leader at the church and knew a thing or two about cars. 
Not much more than that, but enough. I noticed you're having trouble with your car. I think I can help you. You're spending too much time at the back end. You need to have a closer look at the front end. You see this thing sticking out here? It's called a hood. Let's open it up and take a look. There's something inside you might be interested in. You see that metal thing with all the wiggles coming out of it? It's called an engine. The designer knew you'd have trouble getting around, so he installed this thing to help you out. All you have to do is sit on that rich Corinthian leather, which I can only assume is the little-known third Corinthian variety, put the key in the ignition, turn it on, aim the steering wheel, step on the gas, and you're in business. In this particular model, James, the engine does all the work. So James tried it out. Unfortunately, as he reversed, he drove straight into Josh, knocking him over and crippling him. As oh. is so often the case, though, Josh felt like he better have the last word. Well, James, that's why you always need a backup plan. That's the first time I've seen it. <laughs> the point is, it's not our effort. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And the power in the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And of course, all of this is only possible because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When he died for our sins, when he paid the penalty so that we could also die to sin and be raised to a new life, our next life. And we celebrate that every time we come to the Lord's table. Let's prepare our hearts for that. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who came because Jesus promised, promised that when he would leave, he would send the Spirit to enable us to live the life that he lived in the power and the supernatural power of God. Lord, thank you that this all began at the cross. The death that was died by Jesus for us. And now we can experience the life that Jesus lived as well. Thank you, Lord, for the body that was broken, the blood that shed. Thank you that we can celebrate it here at this table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the servers to join us. And we're going to switch to this mic. Paul talked about uh, the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, and he said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Godwin's going to lead us in a word of thanksgiving for the broken body of Jesus Christ, which is represented by this bread.
Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of Jesus. We want to thank you that you truly love us. When we were powerless, when we were weak, we are not thinking about you. You made all the plans to send Jesus to come die on a cross, to come take away our sins. Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you for what Jesus can do in our lives and what he has done in our lives. He not only changed us, wrote our names in the book of life, but he cleaned us up and gave us the Holy Spirit. And you said the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Father, we want to thank you because his body is bread indeed, and it is the bread of life. Thank you for the bread of life you have given to us. You say anybody who eats of this bread shall never hunger again. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Jesus took the bread and said, This is my body, which has been broken for you. 
So do this in remembrance of me. At the same Passover supper, Jesus then took the cup and he raised it towards heaven and he said, this is my blood that will be shed for you. And then he passed the cup around to his disciples. I'm going to ask Ron to pray for the cup. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for sending your son to allow us to come into your presence. We just can't understand your love, but we appreciate it and thank you for it. Father, as we celebrate what you have done, just allow us to draw close to you. We thank you for your, your gift of eternal life. Amen.